If you've got your, your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 19 today. I admit, today is an interesting passage. It's never really quoted by anyone anywhere. And I'm willing to bet none of your favorite verse is found in this portion. It's basically a travel itinerary from a, a few of Paul's ministry partners. It's the kind of message that one of your parents might leave on your answer machine around Thanksgiving telling you everyone's plans. So this probably is not exciting you for this, is it? You know, the go low and aim high. I mention that because I want you to understand this. It really is an interesting portion of text, though. And it's, it's different than most of the things we go through, especially in the epistles. We're used to, to seeing these commands and teaching. This section really doesn't have a whole lot of that. But I think you're going to find it interesting if you're anything like me, meaning I got into this and I thought, okay, this is way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Hopefully you'll find that the exact same experience. So, Philippians 2, starting in verse 19, we're going to read all the way through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been in distress because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers, the flower fades. like I said, this is a strange text. There's no direct teaching in it. Easily divided into these two main paragraphs, with the first one focusing on a man by the name of Timothy, and the second one on a lesser-known man by the name of Epaphroditus. Before we get into that, though, I, wanna, I want you to understand why such a mundane travel itinerary really is beneficial to the Church of Christ some 2,000 years later. This passage gives us something unique. These two men are this living illustration of what Paul has been teaching in this letter. It's, it's similar to what we experienced last week. We've been talking for a year now about what covenant community is and how we care for each other and, and how we are united to each other as we're united in Christ and how we are to be involved in the lives of each other and the people of this community. Another way to put that is what it means to be Monday Christians and not just Sunday Christians. And then last week, we heard from Sarah and Will Arnett and we heard a real-life example of what covenant community looks like. It's a, an example of them actually letting their needs be known to the community, feeling loved enough to ask for assistance. And then we heard a real-life example of what being a covenant family looks like in response to that. Going out of your way to be a, a blessing, which many of you were to them, to care for their family in the way that you'd care for your own family. Nothing world-changing, but life-changing community changing. And that's really what we have in this travel itinerary. 
It's a a real-life example of what Paul has been teaching us in these first two chapters of Philippians. He taught us the the value of having partners in the gospel. It's just a a looking back at what he has taught us. The the importance of having our affections for the church, that we should approve of what is excellent, and for our love for each other to grow. We learn that it's going to be difficult as we face difficult relational problems and situations and, and really the importance of our submitting to the greater need of the advancement of the gospel over anything. He taught us to rejoice when the gospel is preached, to proclaimed anywhere, to live worthy of the gospel, to stand firm and to stand side by side when we face persecution, to do nothing from selfish conceit, but in humility to count others as more significant than yourself. And to follow Christ's example as we see him go from exaltation to humility and then back to exaltation. And we learn to consider the interests of others more than our own, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then last week we learned about doing all things without grumbling or complaining or arguing. And now we're given this example of that. An example or a model for us to imitate. D.A. Carson once said, Christian character is as much caught as taught. And he meant it caught like a cold, not like you'd catch a fish. That is, we learn it by being in the presence of mature Christians who model the Christian life for us. Whether as a a child or as a new believer later in life, you likely learned how to pray by listening to the way that others pray. In fact, you can hear that in people's voices very often. For a, a long time, our youngest daughter... When she would pray, she would pray for them to feel better, which was really great when someone was sick. However, it was a little out of place when we'd sit down at dinner, uh, and she'd begin to pray, Dear God, help Beckham to feel better, Mommy feel better, Daddy feel better, Sadie feel better. Amen. She was mimicking what she heard, and apparently we only pray for sick people. But to hear her do that was this, this idea of, okay, she's hearing the way we do that, and she's doing what we do. That's one of the ways we learn of that. And the point is that, that we need models for the Christian life showing us how to put this into real-world living. The very things that we're learning from the Word of God, what does that look like? Models of what repentance looks like. Repentance to God, of course, because all sin is ultimately against Him, but also repentance to each other when, when we've sinned against a fellow man, our fellow human. We need examples of, of generosity with our time and money. We need a, examples of simply slowing down and listening to someone because they're important. And most importantly, I think we need examples that are, are genuine. Not portraying some false perfection, but actual grace. Grace to others and, and grace, to be honest, about our own constant need of God's grace. A need that is met only in the gospel of Christ. And, and that's why this text before us is really more beautiful than I think we initially understand. Because it doesn't really push us to this extraordinary life. No. It does something so much better. It displays the ordinary Christian life. And we need that. Some years ago, while sitting in the backyard watching Laura water plants... An illustration of how we live our lives came to mind. I think we tend to think if, if we want to do something amazing for God, that means huge and significant, some huge gesture. Uh, we think, I'll take this bucket of water, which is, is life, and we're going to go dump it out and make a huge splash. 
for the cause of Christ. You know, maybe they'll write books about me someday. I'll sell everything. I'll have one pair of clothes. I'll go live and minister to, to orphans in Nairobi. And, and, and it just sounds amazing when we put it into words like that. But that's not the ordinary Christian life. And so while Laura watered these plants and I sat there completely unhelpful, this idea hit me. Our life is like a single watering can. The water inside is our time, our, our life. And the way we actually spend that life is to pour a little here and, and a little there, a little to nourish this newly planted seed, a, a little on this flower, a little bit on that tomato plant. Some is even poured on the cement before we realize what a waste that is. Uh, the point is, the, the watering can doesn't make a big splash. But little by little, bit by bit, the entire can is poured out. It's the little things that make up the Christian life. It's the inviting someone to church or, or out to lunch. It's giving to the needs of others or, or listening to the problems of hurting people and giving real hope, gospel hope. It's caring for children or including the kid down the street whose parents are rarely home. It's being a respectful employee. It's sharing a verse with someone who really needs to hear it. It's asking how to pray for someone and then actually praying for them. It's contentment with the life that God has given you. It's what we saw last week even, simply not complaining. It's a thousand little things that don't make a splash, but together make up a life well lived. And that's what we see here with Timothy and Epaphroditus. They're normal people. They didn't make some huge splash, but they poured out their life little by little in faithful, ordinary service. And I want us to look at this divinely inspired travel itinerary. Maybe the only one. We tend to think of Paul as a, a great theologian. And, and we should, because he is a great theologian. But what I really love about Paul and what we see in this letter to the Philippians is that he loves people. All these people that God has put in his life, he cares for. He loves the Christians that make up this church in Philippi. And, and we've seen this many times in the first two chapters. Paul's not shy even about praising people for their faithful ministry. He praises both Timothy and Epaphroditus for the way that they have ministered with him and to him. Last week, we, we learned, like I mentioned a minute ago, about doing everything without grumbling and complaining. And Paul's example here is this exact opposite of what grumbling is. Because he's, he's complimenting. He's building up these two brothers in Christ. And in doing so, he is an example of encouragement. And I want you to see this, that we build up the body of Christ when we give encouraging words to each other. In fact, it helps us not to grumble. When we are looking for ways in which others have loved well, rather than looking to see how they have loved poorly. In verses 19 through 24, Paul's writing about Timothy. He says that he hopes to send him back to the Philippians soon. In verse 23, he adds to that idea that he will send Timothy as soon as he knows how things are going to go with him. If you remember, Paul is in prison and he's waiting to find out if he's going to be executed, put to death, or going to be set free. And the subtext is Timothy is going to, to stay and care for Paul right now. And if Paul gets put to death, then Timothy is going to bring news of that to the Philippians later. But if Paul gets set free, he plans to go there as well. And what we're seeing here is that either way, he's, he's commending Timothy. He's saying, this is someone worthy to be listened to, someone who cares about you, someone who cares about the gospel. 
Let me look at verse 20. It's, it's quite interesting. Paul is speaking of Timothy here, and he says, For I have no one like him. I have no one like him. That makes Timothy sound pretty unique. I mean, what's so amazing about Timothy for him to stand out this way? Is he some amazing preacher? Does he have some rare skill set that Paul just absolutely needs with him? Does he have pockets full of cash that are somehow a benefit to Paul? I mean, what is it about Timothy that's so unique that there's no one else like him there? That phrase, like him, it comes from a Greek compound word meaning similar mind. He's saying he has no one who thinks like Paul in the same way that Paul thinks. So what is so unique about Timothy, about the way he thinks? What makes him stand out from all these other people? And I want you to see this. Look at the text. So we keep reading in verse 20 and 21. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's like Paul in the way that he puts the interests of Jesus Christ above his own interest. And he's like Paul in the way that his interest for the Philippians is genuine and self-seeking. When we see what makes Timothy so unique, it really should challenge us to, to ask two questions of ourselves. The first one is this. Do I seek the interests of Jesus Christ more than my own interest? We could also ask that question like this. Am I more concerned about what people think of me or more concerned about what people think of Christ? Or another way, am I more concerned about what pleases me or am I more concerned about what's pleasing to my Lord? I think the second question is this. Do I have genuine concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ? I can't answer that for you. But you need to know the answer. We need to know so that we can seek God in prayer and recalibrate these values if needed. What's important to us? I don't know if you've noticed this as we went through this, but the two unique things about Timothy are basically a rewording of the great commandments which Jesus Christ gives us. Uh, it's the very thing we typically print on the back of our bulletin, and you see it summarized in those words, love God, love others. We see it here because Timothy seeks the interest of Jesus Christ above everything. That's loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, Timothy has a genuine concern for others. That's loving your neighbor as yourself, to love God, to love people. Now, in, in verse 22, Paul speaks of Timothy as a son with a father. This is a concept that's lost in us today. In that time period, almost always, a son would take the same job as their father. Paul is a, a tent maker, but his real task is to proclaim the gospel. That's what he's doing. And he's saying that Timothy, like a son, is taking up the job and spreading and proclaiming the gospel just the way that Paul does. And so he sees him carrying on that tradition in the same way. In verse 22, he also speaks of Timothy serving with him in the gospel. He's speaking of a partnership, this togetherness, which leads us to, to ask this question, who are we serving with? Who is serving with you? When's the last time that you had a conversation or, or you prayed with another believer for a friend or a neighbor, uh, someone that you'd love to see come to know Christ, someone you just wish would come to believe the gospel? And I, I don't ask that to induce guilt. 
I ask because we often forget. We often forget that the grace that we have in Christ really is amazing and really is something that people need to hear. And we've been called to share that grace. Uh, just to point people to the Savior, which we look to. Verses 25 and 30 switch their topic. They begin to speak about another ministry partner, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is, is Greek, and his name is real common at this time. It was based on Aphrodite, which was a Greek god of pleasure and various other things. But really, his name means, means handsome. It's like guapo. That's Spanish. <laughs> Uh, the situation here is that the church in Philippi sent a gift of money to Paul. And it was carried by Epaphroditus, physically carried by Epaphroditus. And since they rarely sent money with one person, the expectation is that someone else traveled with them, and we just don't know what his name is. Uh, what we do know is that on the way there, as he traveled, he became very sick. And now he's being sent back to Philippi, carrying this letter with him, uh, the very letter which we call the book of Philippians today. Epaphroditus is not a pastor. He's not some official missionary. He doesn't appear to be an elder. He's, he's a normal guy. He's a part of the congregation. And Paul is speaking about him and saying this man needs to be honored. And that was a big deal, an important thing, because the Roman culture was a culture that, that dealt a lot with honor and shame. Honor and shame. And Epaphroditus returning early really might have been an occasion for shame. You think of it this way. They, they sent him to care for Paul. And he gets sick, and he's sent home while Paul is still in prison. If we think of it in terms of a missionary, not that that's what he is, but in terms of a missionary, imagine a church raises funds to send someone. They have a stated goal when you get there. Here's what we're hoping for you to accomplish. And the missionary gets on the field, and they struggle, and they come back early, and the goal's not met, and yet they return to the church that sent them. I think there's a temptation for some in the congregation to feel like that money had been wasted. Uh, some might also worry that this makes us look bad. You know, here we are sending someone to care for Paul, and he fails at what he goes to do. And Paul, however, wishes for them to receive Epaphroditus well. He's encouraging them to accept him with honor. And so, we, again, we see Paul complimenting the ministry of a brother in Christ. In verse 25, in fact, he gives them five different titles to this man. If you notice the first three titles connect him to Paul. And the last two titles connect Epaphroditus to the Philippians. The first title is my brother. We use that phrase often. But for a Pharisee Jew to use this term brother for someone who is a Gentile really is a big deal. He's making this point that the church family has this priority over even these cultural expectations. The second and third titles are closely related, fellow worker and fellow soldier. Remember, Paul is an apostle. He could look to Epaphroditus as someone who, who really served under him, but he doesn't. These titles put Epaphroditus on equal ground, equal standing with the apostle Paul. Not someone who labors in front of him or behind him or below him, but alongside with Paul. And that's how the church works. We're, we're fellow workers laboring side by side. And it's hard work, but it's worthwhile work. Our musicians actually come in every Saturday morning and they practice. They come again early on Sunday before the service and they, they play again. They don't get paid, and they do it to serve Christ, to assist in our worship. And 
they rarely hear a thank you or a great job. And the same could be said for so many other places of service in the church. The, the nursery or setting up this room or putting it back like we found it. Taking out the trash. Baking the bread for the Lord's Supper. Or filling the communion cups. Ushers, announcements, scheduling the musicians, planning outreach community service and fellowship events. There's an endless number of things it seems like at times. All these things that really work to allow us to do what we do as a church as we come together and worship the Lord. Even just loving your neighbor well. I don't know if you think of that, but you're loving your neighbor well. That's partnership in the gospel. And I say that because I don't want you to think it's only things within this building or connected officially to the church in that way. Uh, The point is, we are fellow workers laboring side by side for the cause of the gospel. The last two titles that connect Epaphroditus to the Philippians are this. First, he's called your messenger. He's bringing information. Paul only knows how the Philippians feel about him because that information has been communicated to him, and that was done through Epaphroditus. The second title is your minister to my need. So the word minister, we tend to think of it as an ecclesiastical title, but it's a simple word meaning servant. That's why in England we have the prime minister. We don't. They have the prime minister. Uh, That's the head servant of the people, at least in theory. Epaphroditus is called a, a minister. Not because it's an official title like we tend to think of it, but as someone who is serving Paul. Ministering not only to him, but with him. And what I love about this relationship between Paul and Epaphroditus is they don't even know each other at the start of this. Um, And yet we see that just how close they are to each other. It's a reminder to us how relationships are strengthened and grow in service together. Uh, When you serve alongside someone or on a common mission with a fellow fellow believer, you're going to grow close to each other. And, And that's one of the joys of partnership in the gospel. Verse 26 tells us a little about Epaphroditus. He is distressed, it says, because the Philippians are worried about him. And that's no small thing, at least what it tells us about his character. This word distress is the same Greek word that describes how Jesus felt when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, waiting to go to the cross. And Epaphroditus here, we're talking about a man who is in a foreign land, deathly sick, and what is he worried about? He's worried about the Philippians being worried about him. We don't know what the sickness was. We don't know what medicine he took or or what prayers were given. But we know from verse 27 that it was bad. And the assumption was that Epaphroditus could and should have died. And then we see this wonderful phrase, this wonderful phrase that's found all throughout Scripture. But God. But God had mercy on him and he lived. And Paul considers this mercy to him as well. That he doesn't have to to go through the struggle of, of his partner in ministry having passed away. Verse 30 is interesting. It tells of Epaphroditus. It says this, He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What was lacking in their service to him? The church in Philippi wished to communicate love to Paul. And they did this by gathering money to send to him to provide for his needs, to help continue the ministry that he's doing. And what was lacking in the service of the Philippians to Paul uh, was only this, physically bringing that support to him. Imagine, if you will, we gather a bunch of funds, we're going to send a missionary to Uganda, and then we ask someone on Sunday afternoon, who will take this money to Uganda for us? 
We just wait to see who's going to sign up for this trip, right? You're going to have to walk a bunch. You're going to take a dangerous boat ride. You might get sick and die or eaten by an animal or mugged or any number of other things to deliver this. Who's going to go for us? Some of you want to say, yeah, I'll do it right now, don't you? We're not doing that. In this church, Epaphroditus is that person. I'll do it. And he completes what's lacking in their service. He physically takes this to Paul. And this is very apical because serving Jesus always cost us. Usually cost us. It means rearranging our schedule for someone. Or spending our money on someone. Or, or going out or inviting someone in when the only thing you want to do is sit down and relax at home. Like I said, serving others and ultimately Christ will likely cost us. But it's well worth the cost. I told you this. This is a strange passage. It doesn't speak directly to what we are to believe or what we're to feel or what we're to do. But it does show us what it looks like to live out the very things that God has been teaching us throughout this book of Philippians. So let me ask you something. Being a Christian was against the law. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or to put it another way. If an unbeliever came to you and they asked... How is your life any different than mine? What would you say? Better yet, what if a reporter asked to follow you around for a week as he investigated the difference between someone who follows Christ and someone who doesn't? What would that reporter learn? What would he learn about how you spend your time, how you interact with your children, how you speak to your, your spouse? Or how honestly you handle an online quiz or test. Will they learn about prayer? Will they learn that your words are more encouraging or discouraging to the people in your life? That's kind of what we, we see here. He's saying Epaphroditus is not coming back a, a failure or shameful. He's coming back as an example to imitate. Imitate him not because he's perfect, he's not. Imitate him because he values Christ rightly. He may not have great prestige, but he's got his priorities figured out. He's resting in the gospel. You know, many people here today who came to Christ at an older age can tell you about Christians they knew. Christians who were amazing influences in their lives. And as they looked at them and they saw there's something different about these people. I told you all before, when I was 17, I, I came to a church youth group because someone invited me. Not because I saw a sign or was told this existed, but because someone directly to me told me that they would like me to be there. And so I came because I was invited, and then I came back the next week because the girls were really cute. However, I became interested in what they were teaching only because I saw that these people were different. Not perfect, but different. They loved each other. Again, not perfectly, but more than I'd ever seen before. And I think even stranger, they cared about me, even though they had no reason to care about me. And I want to remind you again of this. These servants were very ordinary. In our text, we learn two names. Two names who were partners with Paul, laboring for the advancement of the gospel. There might have been many more. 
Most names are forgotten, and that's okay if your name is, is forgotten by the world. We don't serve the world. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's he who has written our names into the book of life, not because of the works that we do or the service that we render, but because he has saved us by grace through faith. So don't minister or serve because you want to be thanked. If you do it that way, you're going to wear out. You're going to find yourself bitter. Or you're going to make an absolute idol of any ministry or any service you're doing. So we do it for Christ. We, we do it so others can know the joy of forgiven sin. So find joy and service to the Lord, no matter how small it seems. Martin Luther once said, If he finds his heart confident that it pleases God, then the work is good, even if it were so small a thing as picking up a straw. You don't have to move to Africa to be used in the service of Christ. So my prayer is for you to let go of that dream. Let go of that dream that you're going to be some super Christian who, who people do write biographies about. And instead, pick up a new and a better dream, a, a dream to be a faithful servant wherever God has you a compassionate roommate, a humble employee, a a loving husband, a caring wife, an honest student, a repenting sinner, a praying saint. My prayer is that we might embrace this ordinary Christian life, pouring ourselves out like that water can, a little here, a little there, but all for the glory of Christ. I want to close by just reading you a passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-11. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you.